Earlier this week, my family and I were on a little family vacation up in the Central Lakes area, and we went swimming in Bay Lake. Now, Bay Lake is a decently sized lake uh, up in central, the central, north central lakes area. And we had the full experience of going into a lake, and there was not a dock that we were jumping off in, we were going in. Now, how many of you have ever had the experience of going in a lake, and you step one foot in the water, and you say, oh, and then the next step goes in, oh, and you keep on going out into the water, and eventually, I just say, all right, I'm done with this misery, we're just belly flopping in, okay? We're just getting this over with, we're dunking our head in, and it will get it over with. If any of you know that feeling, that's the right thing to do, okay? Don't maximize the pain. Just dive right in, your body gets used to it, and suddenly it's fine. Well, all of our family went in, and we're all going into the water, and all kind of, ah, ah, and then eventually we just dive in. And you know, then the water started feeling great. It was terrific. And it was nice and warm, and we were pretty comfortable. And then sure enough, we got out of the lake, and there was a place, the place where we were staying also had an outdoor pool, and we went straight for the outdoor pool. And I'll tell you, man, that outdoor pool felt like a bathtub. A bathtub. Why? Because when you get in the water, your body acclimates to the water. And this is what is true, just as a matter of how our body works, is also true of how our spiritual life works. We are swimming in cultural waters. And in certain cultural waters, if you had been transported from a different time and you had jumped in, you would have said, what on earth is going on? This is freezing. But when you sit in that water, when you swim in that water, your body gets, your spiritual body, if you will, gets acculturated to the surroundings and the temperature doesn't feel all that different from normal. And I start there because one of the ways that we can tend to be acculturated in our day and age today has actually less to do with some of the things we might see, the very more obvious things, like the way people dress or the way they talk or the music they listen to, but the way they think about life, and particularly the way they think about what a good life is. Now, I saw this, was reminded of this again recently. Uh, my sister shared on our family text chain a story about, uh, from a secular, a purely secular perspective, about why there is such a hard experience today in family breakdown. And in not just family breakdown, family hostility to one another. Parents not talking to children, siblings completely estranged from one another, truly at hatred for each other. How, how can this be? This, there were quotes in this story from a person whose job is to counsel people, try to counsel people from a, a secular perspective through these family breakdowns. And I may have mentioned this previously. One of the things that this uh, very secular person said is that what is entirely new today is how people see just the purpose of life. And what has become central in our world today, in the way we view life, is that life is about individual enjoyment and flourishing. Individual, not family, not cultural, not national. Individual enjoyment, pleasure, flourishing. And you have heard that, certainly, if you've talked to someone. 
and about a family member, and they are estranged, you'll hear things like this. That person's toxic. I, I, I can't live life with that person. I can't flourish with that person. You hear that about marriages that break down. I, I just can't grow with that person anymore. We're not flourishing together. We're not, I'm not enjoying life together. This idea of individual and individualistic flourishing, pleasure, enjoyment is entirely new. And this was even what this secular psychologist was saying, the secular counselor, he's saying, that, that's new. That's not old, that's new. In fact, I studied in law school the, um, the, these ancient uh, uh, sagas of the Icelandic people, written in the 900s or 1000s AD. And you know what? They were mostly fictional. But do you know what they, actually, they, they just utterly focus on? They just revel in, they joy in people's death, heroic deaths, noble deaths. I mean, the idea of a guy who died as celebrated because his enemies came to burn his house over him. Literally, set his fire, house on fire while he was in it. And this noble man just laid down and went to sleep and just let it happen. It was a noble death. He wouldn't run. He wouldn't fight. He would go with honor. In fact, in virtually, in many cultures in the world, and certainly historically, to die with honor was far better than to live with shame. To die with honor far better, even a suffering death, was infinitely to be preferred to saving your life and enjoying your life, but in a shameful way. This idea, an individualistic, kind of experiential, pleasure-based life is a new thing. And I, I start here because we're not going to be able to come into a biblical worldview, into a spiritual worldview, when we're swimming in the waters of a culture that says, what's the good life? Enjoy yourself. Do, do you. You only live once. Don't miss out. Take your money and your resources and your time and devote them to living your best life now. You cannot live a biblical worldview. You cannot live a biblically infused thought pattern when you're swimming in the cultural waters and finding them comfortable that life is about this kind of individual enjoyment. And I feel like I need to start there because I'm going to call the message tonight, Stephen the Fruitful. Stephen the Fruitful. And I suspect that if we are swimming in the cultural view of what makes the good life, we're going to stop for a minute and we're going to be hung up on this question. Wait, how was, how was Stephen living the good life, the fruitful life? Well, think about it. What have we learned about him so far? He devoted his life to serving other people in really messy, difficult, interpersonal conflict. The conflict about the widows. And, and the kind of very cultural dispute about whether these widows were being neglected. He was happy to get his hands dirty in serving others. His life, from what we see of it, was involved in disputing, arguing, defending the gospel before its adversaries. He's called before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and we're going to see tonight that he was killed in a brutal manner of suffering. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how young he was. All we know is that his life was cut short. And it, it almost makes me think about this. We have an apple tree in, in, in our yard. Two apple trees, actually. 
And we got a ton of fruit from both of them last year. And I would remember this as I was pushing our, 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 our lawnmower around. Sometimes the branch of the apple tree would get kind of caught against the lawnmower, and like two apples would fall to the ground. And they wouldn't be ripe apples yet, but they might be looking big, good, juicy apples. And I, oh, man, there go two apples. Those were good ones. And I wonder if, if we're in this mindset, we look at Stephen and we say, man, Stephen, you're like that apple that got knocked off from the tree. You didn't quite get all the way there. Are, are we sure that wasn't something like a waste? And if we do, we're really no different from the disciples of Jesus who looked at a woman, oh, you again, this fly. I, I did battle with this thing, and I'm just going to, uh, this morning, and I'm, sh I'm just going to, I'm going to pray for some spiritual control tonight. So, so Stephen, we see him, and we see this idea of him absolutely committed and losing his life because of it. And I want to suggest tonight that if we're going to understand Stephen the fruitful, we're going to have to challenge our ideas of really what the good life is and what your good life is and, and what my good life is. And I want to look at this in three different aspects. I want to look at this, first of all, in what I'm going to call the Spirit's control over Stephen. Secondly, we're going to look at the Son's glory through Stephen. And thirdly, we're going to look at the Father's plan from Stephen. The Spirit's control, the Son's glory, and the Father's plan. Let me encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to have them open tonight to Acts chapter 7. We'll be just dipping into the beginning of Acts 8 to finish this narrative. And I want us to look tonight at how Stephen's life was truly one of the most fruitful lives of any we see in the New Testament, and how, what encouragement that will make for us to have that kind of fruitful Existence. Let's start, first of all, by talking about the Spirit's control. Now, when I say the Spirit's control, what I'm suggesting is that Stephen, as a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, was controlled by the Spirit. And here's where I get this from. Ephesians 5 and verse 18 says these words, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. But, finish it with me, be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And if you've ever wondered, why does he set those two things up as a contrast? Don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. You're going to get at it if you realize he's talking about control. How does a person act when he's under the control of alcohol, when he is drunk with wine? He acts differently than that same person acts when he is not under the influence, under the control of wine. Wine, alcohol, has the effect on us of lessening our inhibitions, of lessening our own internal governor, of our own control. It's why, in fact, you see people pursuing alcohol at parties and other things. Because they feel in not enough control. They feel like this is going to be awkward. This is going to be uncomfortable. And to lessen those inhibitions, to break down those barriers, the wine needs to flow. 
So Paul is saying, don't be drunk, don't be controlled by wine. Instead, be filled with, or we might say, controlled by the Spirit. And I think that's really helpful for us. Because it has the idea for us of connecting what it looks like to really be a spiritual person. It looks like being controlled by the Spirit. And conversely, I know this won't be complicated, it will mean being controlled by nothing else. Now, have you ever had the experience in your life of losing control momentarily? Losing control? I know this. I know there are times in my life when I have lost control with my speech. And I don't know if it's the similar thing for you that it is for me. Do you ever have it where it just seems like something snaps in you for just a minute and you just speak? You don't think. You don't, you don't ponder. Something just snaps and you just speak. Do you know what you're doing? You're sinning. Because typically what controls us in that moment is not the spirit when I, when I just snap. What controls me? My anger. My pride. My selfishness. My irritation level. Whatever it is, I am being controlled in that moment. Not by the spirit of God, but when that, bam, I just, I just, I'm mad, I speak. Let me just encourage you in your spiritual life, be relentless against that kind of speech. When you feel that urge to just speak, by the grace of God, just say, no, I'm not going to do it. In fact, it's not just in your words. How many times have we found ourselves rushing toward a sin of a certain kind, and our conscience is gnawing at us about it, and we just want to, we don't even want to think. We just want to do. We just want to act. It's like our, we're snapping in that moment. Just do it. Do you know there's, do you know the Bible speaks of this? Scripture says in Proverbs 19, also that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And he that hasteth with his feet sin, sinneth. If, here's what he's saying. To be without knowledge is a bad thing. To be thoughtless is a bad thing. And then, the, 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 the corollary to that is, if you're running quick somewhere without thinking, you're sinning. Because someone who's under the control of the Spirit is always just that, under control. Someone who is out of control can never be said to be spiritually led. That's one reason why we see in some corners of the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement when people are clearly acting out of control in the way they're, at, they're controlling their bodies, in the way they're controlling their words, in the way they're controlling their emotions. We can say, we can say clearly by the word of God, they are not led by the Spirit because the Spirit always operates under control. Now, let that just be one simple rule for all of us this week. Am I acting in any way in a snap or hasty or uncontrolled action? I'm sinning. The Spirit is always under control. And what I, what I want us to notice in Stephen's life is exactly the control that was manifested through him in this intolerably stressful situation. I want you to put yourself in Stephen's position. 
Stephen has been dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. These are the most prominent people in all of the land of Israel. This is literally the Jewish Supreme Court. You are imagining that you are standing up in our world before the United States Supreme Court and you are coming to present your arguments. You can imagine the fight or flight reaction that Stephen would have experienced. His body would have been producing epinephrine, adrenaline, the, f the fight or flight mechanism would have triggered, and immediately in that moment, he is standing in front of the council. And what does scripture relate about him? Well, look back to, first of all, chapter 6 and verse 15. The accusations, these false accusations that at least have a kernel of truth to them, we looked at last week, are being levied against him. And look what verse 15 says. And all that sat in the council, the Supreme Court, looking steadfastly at him, they were staring right at the prisoner in the face, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now stop there for just a minute. I don't know what an angel's face looks like. No, that's true. I don't either. I don't know what an angel's face looks like. What, what is Luke telling us there in Acts? I think he's telling us this. It is speaking about his composure it is speaking about a man who was completely, entirely at peace, completely calm, and utterly just free of anxiety and worry. Everyone looked at him, and it was like they were looking at an angel because this person just didn't almost appear human in the way he was reacting. I was talking with Peter Schulte this morning about um, uh, some, a softball team. Peter and I are on a, a softball team together, and he was talking about this other team with some younger guys. And he was saying, you know, under pressure, they just crack. They just melt down. And any of you who have played sports, you know this phenomenon. When the going gets tough, unfortunately, not always does everyone get going. Only the tough get going. That's what, that's what the statement says. There are some people who, under pressure, the bright lights, they just can't take it. Their face betrays it. Their nerves betray it. And they just melt down. Here, Stephen, in this intolerable human stress, is just completely calm, completely composed, completely at peace. What is that? It's a man who's full of the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is... Peace. Peace. He was simply content with wherever God had placed him. And this is especially overwhelming to me to think about in light of the contrast that is drawn in this passage. Here's this man who's just looking completely calm, completely composed. And what's the Sanhedrin doing? Well, after he gives his speech, after he gives his sermon to his accusers, Notice what happens with them. Look at verse 54 of chapter 7. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, what does this mean? It literally means they were grinding their teeth at him. They were grinding their teeth looking at him. I mean, just complete anger, fury. In our cultural expression today, we'd probably be shaking our fists. How dare you? I mean, this is just absolute anger. And then look at what happens next. After he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. I mean, literally like kids. La, we, we are not going to listen. La, 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 la. Screaming at him. And notice this, and ran upon him with one accord. Friends, these were the most prominent 
important, influential people in all of Judea. And we've talked about it before in the Jesus' parable of the, the prodigal son. Do you remember that this prodigal, the prodigal son had a father who, when he saw him a long way off, ran to him? And we've talked about the fact that for an old man, an old dignified man in that day to run was considered absolutely shameful. Because to run, you had to pick up your garments. You had to basically bring up your long robes, and it exposed your legs. And for a man to pull up and expose his legs and begin running like this, appearing out of control, was a very shameful thing. And so in this idea, these important, prominent men are shouting and yelling after what Stephen has said. They are charging at him, plugging their ears acting utterly uncontrolled, utter, acting utterly shamefully, even in that day. What a contrast it is. You know, you probably have experienced it in your life before. I need to act under control right now, folks. Anyone have a fly swatter? Um, you've experienced it in your life. What's one of the hardest things to do? To maintain control when someone who's talking to you is out of control. When someone is angry speaking to you, it's hard, it's very difficult not to restrain that same kind of, or return that same kind of issue. And we have that here with Stephen, under the control of the Holy Spirit, this contrast that he has with each one of them. But then notice not only here <coughs> Stephen's composure and the contrast that he has, but the comfort that is given to him. Will you, will you notice with me here? Look at verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Oh, man, I almost had him. You can't see this, friends. This is really, this is really something else. And the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now, just stop here for just a minute. The Son of Man, he is looking up steadfastly into heaven. Now, I just want you to think about that. Why is he doing that? All these people are ahead of him. They are utterly enraged with him. They're gnashing their teeth at him. They're the Supreme Court. And he's looking beyond them. He's looking right up into heaven. And notice what God does. This gracious revelation. The heaven is opened. And he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. You couldn't even paint that picture. Seeing the Shekinah glory of God and Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. God grants him this, this extraordinary comfort in the midst of his difficulty and intolerable stress to say, I'm here! By the way, have you ever or wondered about the fact that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God? Do you know in the New Testament, Jesus at the right hand of God is a very common idea. But do you know that in those circumstances in the New Testament, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God? What do you think made Jesus stand up? Don't you think it's the picture of a Savior who says, Stephen, I'm really concerned about what's going on down here. I'm standing up. I'm with you. I am taking a position of care 
and concern and a watchful eye over this entire situation. I just think that detail alone is so amazing. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, watching everything that is going on. Now, I just want to tie this in really quickly to the, to, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because this is something I think that is so terrific when we think about Stephen's life. Here was a man who was already filled with the Spirit. Then he stands in front of the council, the Sanhedrin, And we've looked already in our morning services at Mark chapter 13. What did Jesus promise to his disciples when they were brought before rulers and kings? He said, don't worry about what you're going to say. Why? Because it's going to be given you in the same hour what to say. And he said, it's not going to be you who speak. Who's going to be the one speaking? The Holy Spirit. Here's a man full of the Spirit. Now he stands in front of the council and it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him at the promise of Jesus. And then now he's going to get murdered. And do you know what the promise of, the, of, of God is in the Bible? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Why? For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Do you know, friends, there's a promise from God that when you are reproached for the name of Christ, if you are persecuted for the name of Christ, if you are martyred one day for the the word of Christ, the Spirit of God is resting upon you in special measure. You don't need to worry how you would respond one day if you're persecuted like this. You have the promise of God that his Spirit will comfort you and enable you in that moment. One pastor says it's like Stephen here had a threefold measure of the Spirit on him. He had the measure of the Spirit because he was full of the Spirit. He had the measure of the Spirit because he was testifying the words of the Spirit to the Supreme Court. And he had the, he had the promise of the Spirit. He had another blessing of the Spirit as the Spirit of God rested upon him in his reviling. What a wonderful thing, a man operating under the Spirit's control. So let's move, first of all, from the Spirit's control to, secondly, what I'm going to call the Son's glory. Because when we see what a fruitful life looks like, it's not just here a man who was controlled by the Spirit, but was controlled by the Spirit to glorify the Son. And look first with me at verse 56. He has now, in the council, looked up. He has seen Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Do you know what he was doing there in that moment? He was testifying to Jesus Christ. He was testifying to the Messiah Now, I just want to point out this fact to you. The Sanhedrin had heard testimony to Jesus Christ before. Who did they hear it from? They heard it from Jesus. Do you know Jesus said very similar words? In Mark chapter 14, he says, after the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus had testified that he would be at the right hand of God, and he was killed for it. That was the charge that stuck. Okay, he blasphemed. He's dead. Well, the Sanhedrin after that had heard Peter testify. They'd heard the disciples testify to who Jesus was. But now in this occasion, this was the death sentence for Stephen. 
Did you notice that before this, they gnashed on, uh, on him with their teeth, and they were very angry, but they didn't move to stone him. When did they move to stone him? They moved to stone him when he added a footnote. Oh, by the way, I'm looking up right now, and I'm seeing Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. That was it. That was the bold testimony to Christ. And it was an incredibly costly testimony. Friends, do you know this is true of every martyr? Do you know what, you know what the word martyr means, don't you, in the original Greek? The word, do you know what that word means? It doesn't mean someone who dies. The word means a witness. The word martyr in the Greek simply means a witness, someone who gives testimony. Stephen was a martyr, not simply because he died. More than that is because what he testified to in his death. A martyr can die for many things and give testimony to many different kinds of things. It's a martyr for Christ who lays their life on the line and says, I will die for this. That's what makes them a martyr. Because they are witnessing to who Jesus Christ is to them. And Stephen was a martyr. Listen to what this, this commentator says, and I wish I had thought of this. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. He says, the fires in the olden days never made martyrs. They revealed them. Think about that for a minute. The fires in the olden days, people who died, were burned at the stake, that didn't, that didn't, um, that didn't make martyrs. They revealed them. No hurricane of, ever, of persecution ever creates martyrs. It reveals them. Stephen was a martyr before they stoned him. He was the first martyr to seal his testimony with his blood. Do you know what a fruitful life looks like for you, friends? It looks like being your own martyr. Oh, I don't mean to truly necessarily to death. God may not call you to that kind of death but he calls you to be a martyr. He calls you to seal your testimony to Jesus Christ with something costly, to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow him no matter the cost. And when this world, who is given to a life of personal fulfillment, of individualized entertainment and enjoyment, looks at someone who testifies to the work of Christ in their life, and it costs them something, they see a martyr. Even one who may not be called ultimately to seal it with their blood. They see a witness to Christ. And here's Stephen. We call him the first martyr. But as our commentator here identifies for us, he was simply, it simply revealed the martyr that he already had been when he chose the value, the prize of Christ more than anything else in this world. Friend, are you a martyr? Is your Christian testimony costing you something that can be seen by the world around you? May we be that kind of witness. 
Notice what else we see. Not only his testimony to Christ, his desire for Christ. Will you see here with me in verse 57, after they've stopped their ears and they run upon him with one accord, in verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stone him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. We'll come back to that in a moment. And they stoned Stephen. And what was Stephen doing? He was calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know, this is one of the examples of a few handfuls of prayer in our New Testament to Jesus himself. I think God, Jesus taught us generally to pray our Father, who art in heaven. But there are examples in the Bible where people pray to Jesus. And it's perfectly appropriate to pray to Jesus. This is one example. But this is an example of someone who has been simply devoted to a desire for Christ. He says, Lord Jesus, the one he's just seen in heaven, receive my spirit. What a wonderful submission. What a wonderful commitment. What a wonderful desire. It reminds me of Paul in Philippians 1 who says, I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Think about Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I'm ready. Take my spirit. In the same way, Stephen here isn't clinging to life. He's not screaming about the injustice being done to him. He is simply looking up to heaven and saying, Jesus, here's my spirit. Receive it. I'm ready. What a wonderful example and testimony that is to us. But finally, I want to look at the example of Christ in this testimony that Stephen made to the glory of the Son. Notice what happens in verse 60. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Why do I say that this is an example of Christ? You know, we have two examples of people speaking on the, 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 the heels of their death. We have one example in the Old Testament, a man named Zacharias, the son of Jehoiada the priest. Do you remember Joash the king having this son of Jehoiada, the high priest who had been his mentor, this, this, and, 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 and Zacharias is stoned, he is killed, by the people of his day. Do you remember what Zacharias said? He was a prophet. He was a man who was used as a spokesman of God. Here's what he said. When he died, he said, the Lord look upon it and require it. Now, I don't fault Zacharias necessarily for saying that. You know, I'd want to be saying the same thing too. Lord, hold this against him. Make sure you judge this wickedness. It is wickedness. It's horrible. Friends, do you know what happened to Stephen when he was stoned? Do you, do you want to know what happened to the, what stoning looked like to the Jews? Number one, the commentators tell us the Sanhedrin had no right to stone anyone. This wasn't a judicial execution. This was a lynch mob. And we have in our, in our country our own shameful history of lynch mobs. This was a lynch mob. They didn't have a right to do what they did. But do you know what they did? Do you know what a stoning was? In the Mishnah, a Jewish collection of teaching that came after this time, but likely would have been recording what happened at this time. It said this, to stone someone, you take them out to a height of two, twice a man, so maybe 12 feet above, and they have their back to you, and the witnesses push them off. Push them off. And this is in the Mishnah. 
and he falls and he hits the ground. And they say, if he dies, all the better. Good, he's dead. If you don't, the witness goes down there, rolls him over, takes a large stone and drops it on his heart. And if, you, if he's dead at that point, good, he's gone. And if not, you take stones and you throw the stones at him until he's dead. That's probably what happened to Stephen. Pushed off a small cliff, a stone dropped on him, and then people throwing stones. It's interesting that Saul was the one, Paul, who was collecting the garments. They were taking off their outer garments, likely because of the strain. Stephen was probably a younger man, probably in good fitness, probably didn't die easily. They probably took a lot of boulders and stones. Now, I want you to think, in this utter suffering, this intolerable stress, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way that Stephen is under, under this gruel, grueling, cruel, unjust death, what is Stephen doing? Stephen's scrambling to get on his knees. Wow. He's scrambling to get on his knees with, as, as large boulders are being hurled against him. And what is he saying? Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Here's what he's saying. God, don't hold it against them. Don't hold it against them. What would you be saying? What would I be saying? Well, we know that if you're controlled by the Spirit, we know what you'd be saying because we know what Jesus said. Because we know that as Jesus hung on that cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here was a man who reflected the example of Jesus Christ in his martyr testimony to these hard-hearted people. And you know, friends, you could go throughout Christian history and find the exact same thing. There was a, a Scottish minister in the 1500s named George Wishart who was cruelly killed as a martyr. And the commentator Barclay uh, re records that when George Wishart was to be executed, the executioner hesitated. And Wishart came to him and kissed him. Lo, he said, here is a token that I forgive thee. Executioner coming to kill him. He sees him pause. He kisses him and he says, here's the sign, here's the token that I forgive thee. There's no other way to explain that. The man who's under the control of the Spirit of God and who is utterly giving the testimony, the unvarnished testimony of Jesus Christ, he desires Christ over everything. I just marvel at this, folks. I just marvel at it. And I just see in it the grace of God to transform a human life. And that same grace is available to you this week, that you would not issue one word out of control, that you would not take one action outside the Spirit's control, that you would be devoted to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that you would be desiring Jesus more than anything else in this life, that in fact you would be looking forward to say, Jesus, receive my spirit. I'm ready. I'm ready to come see you because that's far better than any kind of individual, personal enjoyment or fulfillment I can experience in this life. I'm ready. That's what Stephen's example was. That was the good life. That was the fruitful life. And not only was it the fruitful life in the sense of his character and the control of the Spirit under him, but finally, let's look very briefly at the Father's plan. 
Stephen didn't experience the good life in the way 21st century Americans would. He had a very painful death, a very brutal end, probably a very young uh, exit. But he was a fruitful man. Why? Well, notice with me in, in chapter 8. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. That word, at that time, that word time there can often mean that day. Literally a 24-hour period. It is possible that by saying, at that time, Luke is intending us to take from that, that literally that day, Literally that day of Stephen's stoning, a persecution arose. As if Stephen was the one who, who, who was martyred and killed, and the Sanhedrin, was not, they were not done looking for blood. They came that day against the church, and a persecution, a great persecution arose. And look at this. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And go down now to ver verse 4 of chapter 8. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Preaching the word. You see, friends, I, I have a question for you. Why does Stephen's death get so much focus in our New Testament. Why? Do you know that something? Other people got martyred. Peter got martyred. The great leader of the early church. We, we see nothing in the New Testament about Peter's martyrdom. Paul was martyred. We see nothing about it in the New Testament. James, the friend of Christ, one of the three inner sanctum, he was martyred. All we see about him was that Herod decided to kill him with the sword. That's it. That's all we get. Why is Stephen's martyrdom the one in which the Holy Spirit focuses our attention? Why? I'll tell you this, and I said this earlier tonight. It's because there may not be, in this sense, a more fruitful member of the early church than Stephen. Why? Because it was his death that caused the church to explode. What was the church before Stephen's death? It was a Jerusalem church. It was a Jewish church. It was a church where the gospel was multiplying in Jerusalem. What happens after Stephen got up and told the Sanhedrin forcefully their sin and it cost him his life? The persecution that started in Jerusalem like a centrifugal force sent the gospel to the whole world. And it was only after this, you'll see in chapter 8, the gospel goes to Samaria and takes hold there. Then a chapter or two later, the gospel now goes to the Gentiles. The door of repentance has been opened to the Gentiles. And now the Gentiles are coming in. And friend, it doesn't stop there. Don't forget, without Stephen, there's no Paul. Paul, it says here in chapter 7, or in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, was consenting to his death. Do you know what that means? It's not certain. It appears likely that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member, likely, of the, of the Jewish Supreme Court. It was likely that he was one of the ones potentially running against Stephen. He was one of the ones voting, if you will, to condemn him to death. He was violently agreeing with his death. He was witnessing it. And can you imagine, as Stephen's prayer, kneeling as stones are falling on him, he cries out with a loud voice to heaven, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. How, for how many times do you think the Apostle Paul, after he got saved, looked back on that prayer and said, God, thank you for answering that one. 
thank you for answering that one. Because that was answered in me. Do you know Paul records this, his own experience of this in Acts chapter 22? He says, Lord, they know, those of Jerusalem know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Paul was brought to Christ in part because of the faithful witness, the martyr Stephen. And Stephen's fruitful life, though it terminated at an early age, perhaps, his life was part of the explosive spread in God, God's faithful plan to send the gospel to the entire world. Friends, may we each bear that kind of fruit. I don't know where God's called you in your life. I don't know what the circumstances of your life or death will be, but I can promise you one thing. My job as a pastor is to prepare you to die. That's our job as elders. It's to prepare you to die because one day you will be standing on, uh, 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 before your final tribunal. You will be lying in your deathbed and your life will be standing as a witness as a testimony to what you actually believed and how you actually lived in that way. And in that moment, may you be able to say, may you be prepared to say with the Apostle Paul or, and with Stephen, I'm sorry, Lord, receive my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. May I live out the witness that you have for me. One more question as we close. How are you and I going to live that kind of fruitful life? I mean, this week, what are you going to do? Well, I, I just have one picture that I want to close us with tonight. If you came to my house tonight, you'd go out into the backyard and you'd see grass that is extremely dry. It's yellowed. It's hard. It's tough. It's not very pretty. I haven't had to mow it in a really long time. That's been one blessing that's come out of this drought. But then you'd come around to the front of our house, and do you know what you'd see? You'd see flower beds that are absolutely overflowing with flowers, blooming all different kinds of colors, colorful, beautiful, vibrant, full of life, overflowing their beds. Do you know what the one difference between those two things is? They've been subjected to the same heat, They've been subjected to the same glaring sun, the grass and the flowers. There's one difference. What is it? It's that a very faithful wife has been watering the flowers. And no one's been watering the grass. And you know the same thing's true with you. There's nothing miraculous about Stephen in the sense that makes him different than you are. It's not that he's some kind of heroic figure that you and I could never possibly aspire to. The difference with Stephen is that under the glare of hot persecution and difficulty, his spirit had been watered. It was watered in the word of God. That's what allowed him to bring out that Old Testament history with such boldness, with such clarity, and with such confidence. He knew the word of God. And not only that, he had a vibrant relationship with the Holy Spirit. He was full of the spirit, and he was full of faith. And you know, friends, when we're watered daily by the Word of God as students of the Word of God who love the Word of God and delight in it, 
And when we're under submission to the Spirit of God, the Spirit and the Word will make you fruitful wherever you are. So I close with that this evening. What are you going to do this week to be a martyr for Jesus? Whether or not you're called to die for him or not, do this. Get in the Word. Be, have your roots deep in the Word. Memorize the Word. Meditate on the Word. You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. And then this week, make sure that you're in tune with the Spirit of God. Make sure that you're under his control. Make sure that you're submitted to him and to the glory of Christ. And don't be surprised when your fruit is revealed to others as well.